This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Francis, and I'm here with Professor John Zarilli. We're going to be talking about his book, A Citizen's Guide to Artificial Intelligence. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We are so happy to have you here. So I'm first just going to go um, into some background questions about how you got into, how you came to write this book. So how did you get into studying AI? I did a PhD in cognitive science and philosophy. And cognitive science is a branch of um, psychology, I suppose, which looks at the mind as a kind of computer, attempt to answer questions about the operation of the mind as if it were a computer. So there's a natural affinity between cognitive science and artificial intelligence. And so, in fact, the two disciplines kind of started at the same time in the middle of the 20th century. So when I finished my PhD and submitted my PhD, I was looking for an academic job And there just happened to be lots of jobs that were asking for a particular combination of skills. Um, On the one hand, they they wanted people with some kind of background in policy or politics or law or economics. And on the other hand, they wanted someone that had some engagement with um, computer science, data science, statistics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, or cognitive science. So I was able to tick one of the elements in both of those two sets of skill sets. Um, So I had legal training um, from my earlier days. I was a lawyer before I went into philosophy and cognitive science, and I had the cognitive science. So on the basis of that combination, that interesting Venn diagram, I applied for a job in New Zealand and I got it. And basically it's gone on from there. That was in 2017. And then I went to Cambridge, England to do um, some further study, uh, sorry, further work in the same area. And now I find myself at Oxford 
doing again the same the same sort of work. So I, I, I look at the philosophy of artificial intelligence, um, uh, sort of theoretical methodological questions around machine learning, around explainability, and because of my legal background, I'm also interested in the law of privacy broadly construed and how that might need to change um, and adapt to the challenges that are being posed by technology today. So just a quick example would be deep fakes. You might have heard of deep fakes. These are images that are generated using um, machine learning technology, very advanced machine learning technology, and they have the power to reproduce the image you know, the likeness or the voice of another person with uncanny precision. And this is really disturbing because you might one day be portrayed as doing something quite scandalous or demeaning, and you, of course, will deny that that's you, but it's going to look very much like you. It's going to be almost indistinguishable from you. That's a challenge that um, the traditional common law of privacy has not really been able to um, address, or it's certainly not a problem that has it has had to address. So I'm interested in how um, concepts from our various um, legal systems can be adapted to to stand up to the plate and and deal with that that challenge. So that's how I got into this. That's what I'm sort of stuff that I look at at the moment, and um, yeah, we'll see where we go from there. How did you find that transition from studying cognitive science to looking at AI? To be honest, it was more of the same in the sense that uh, once you have a certain background in statistics and computer science, um, you don't actually need all that much. Once you have a basic grasp of statistics, computer science, maybe a little bit of smattering of linear algebra, you can sort of follow your way through more or less a lot of the technical papers and that's what I was having to deal with when I was immersed in the cognitive science literature so it was just a switch from cognitive science to machine learning stuff. Uh, To be honest the most annoying thing about it has been dealing with papers that are now um, that I'm forced to read in uh, latex format if you know what what I mean by that because Often in cognitive science, the papers are published in nice journals with nice formatting and page um, pagination, whereas here you just got latex format to contend with, and it's it's not, at least for me, easy on the eyes. I really hate the the two column format. And in terms of with um, using your law background. Did you did you feel like do you feel like this is a new is this an is is this an exciting way to apply law is it like feel like a new frontier in law academia? Um, I I'm a little bit old fashioned when it comes to law. I'm the kind of person who likes to see how far we can get with what we've got. So before um, sort of throwing out the old book. I'd like to see, and you know, in getting a new book of rules, I like to see how much service we can get from what laws that we have, and that's the part of it that I find quite interesting and stimulating because you can go back and unearth 
um, old cases from the you know 17th 18th century and find actually there were principles that were stated here that might still be stretchy enough to encompass the sort of issue that's being posed by this newfangled piece of tech. So I like that that part of it. As far as it being a new frontier, though, um, I would be um, wrong to suggest that nothing has to change. There, there definitely does have to be um, innovations in the current, certainly regulatory environment to deal with artificial intelligence. But I'm, as I say, more interested in the humdrum principles of law and how they fit or don't fit the technology. That was really, I think, I thought that actually really came through in the book in an interesting way, in the way that you present AI as not something that's like a break in, in history, in the series, in the march of like history of technology and, um, and politics, but rather something that it's a continuation of things that we've already seen. And maybe it's an intensification in some places, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not a new thing. Necess- I mean, it's a new thing, but it's not like, it's not completely unprecedented. Um, so that brings me to a question about why did you, why did you decide to write a citizen's guide to artificial intelligence? With the changes that are afoot, we thought there's no general guide that can clearly and yet patiently explain the main points that people really need to get their head around to deal with, um, to understand the new environment that we're in. There's obviously plenty that's been written over the past 40 years about the environment and climate change and uh, biodiversity loss. There are any number of fantastically written, you know, brilliant guides into, into that. But there wasn't anything similar um, that was readily available for artificial intelligence. So that was the inspiration. It was to get a book that could bring people up to speed with the main issues that they would need to know in order to make informed decisions as, as citizens of, of, of a country when, where you vote and can affect uh, the leaders that are installed. Hmm. Great. So now going into the contents of the book, my first question is just broadly about AI. As we stand now, how does AI compare to to human intelligence? What can what can AI do that that human intelligence can't do, and maybe vice versa? Okay. So for the benefit of your audience, it's probably good to just state up front that AI, artificial intelligence, is just a special branch of computer science. And um, a, a very famous definition of AI was by a guy called Marvin Minsky, and he said that AI is the science of making computers produce behaviours that would be considered intelligent if they were done by human beings. So that's one way of thinking about AI, what it is, and how it relates to the rest of computer science. Um, and that's pretty ambitious. If you just step back and, and let that sink in, 
Um, it would be very ambitious for any science to have that as a goal, to replicate human performance. Now, so far, reproducing human abilities, even in very specific domains, such as being able to um, say recognise an object or understand a sentence in a particular language, these are extremely challenging. Um, and even then, every stupendous achievement in artificial intelligence that's been celebrated in recent years has occurred within very, very narrow domains of endeavour. So you're probably familiar with chess playing, playing Go, stock trading, things like that. But human intelligence is not like that. Our ability to play chess doesn't preclude our ability to play tennis or to write a song or to bake a pie. Most of us can do um, any of these things if we want to. Um, so, in fact, many researchers in AI would regard the holy grail of AI research in being able to crack that nut. What is it about human minds and bodies that make them able to adapt so well, so fluidly to so many divergent task demands. I think the example I use in the book is um, with a calculator. So computers, and in this case a calculator, could can find easy what we find very hard to do. So they might have real struggles trying, we, we might have real struggles trying to calculate, you know, an extremely large number, uh, multiplying an extremely large number by another extremely large number in a hurry. We wouldn't be able to do that. Um, whereas a computer can do that you know, less than a second. But on the other hand, computers seem to experience staggering difficulty with what most of us find really easy, like opening a door or pouring cereal from a box. I think that's an example I also used in the book. Um, and another example is being able to hold a conversation. It's, it's extremely difficult to get a computer to hold a conversation that isn't completely stilted and warped and stereotyped. So um, a computer needs to be programmed so as not to interpret what we're saying in any number of other very logical but potentially ridiculous ways. So again, another example from the book, when you tell your flatmate to go and pick up a bottle of milk, yeah, they know exactly what that means. But a computer could interpret that in any number of more logical um, and simple ways, something like, find milk, pick it up, elevate its position relative to the earth, and then put it down again, pick up a bottle of milk. So that's just a, a silly example, like a toy example, but it, it makes the point that it's actually very hard to get computers to do things that we find easy. Um, so to go back to that definition and to sort of get back to your question, um, well, Marvin Minsky says AI is about getting machines to do things that are intelligent if a human did them. Okay, so that's still a long-term goal of the field of AI, but it's not a very good description of what most AI research is about today. It's still true that many of the central application areas for modern artificial intelligence involve reproducing human abilities in language, perception, reasoning, motor control, and these sorts of things. Um, and yes, to that extent, 
AI involves making computers in our own image, so to speak. But nowadays, AI systems are also used in many more arcane areas um, to accomplish tasks that are um, of a scale or at a speed that just would completely dwarf human counterparts. So, for instance, they're used in high-frequency stock trading, in internet search engines, in the operation of social media sites, um, uh, autopilots on on aircraft, um, and so on. So a a better way to understand AI for near-term purposes, okay, so for now and the next couple of decades, is as something less less human, so much more narrow and specialised than human intelligence, but at the same time something that's very superhuman in the sense that um, it vastly exceeds what a human would be able to do, just like with the calculator example. Um, so that's that would be my answer to your, your question. So we're not necessarily trying to replicate human intelligence, but augment it is a better word. Yeah, it, it would be a kind of attempt to zone... I should say zoom in on a particular aspect of human intelligence and then magnify it times a hundred times a thousand in speed, in scale, um, in efficiency. I think that's more accurate than looking at AI as the attempt to, to create humans in machines. Do we think that this type of this this type of learning or this type of understanding or maybe not maybe understanding is not the right word but this type of intelligence that ai aims towards is that changing the way that humans think um potentially uh, it, it can have that effect so if there's a lot of research that shows that when humans don't exercise a skill they lose it so the more and more we uh, delegate to machines to do things that we would have done, the less proficient we are at doing those things. And, I mean, that's probably something that you know in your own life. Um, the more you have calculators at your disposal, sorry to keep coming back to the calculator, but it seems to be um, the, the example in chief here, um, the more you use calculators to do mental arithmetic, well, the more your mental arithmetic degrades. Whereas in decades gone by when calculators weren't ready to hand or when schools insisted that up until a certain age students could not use calculators, mental arithmetic was probably better. So I don't doubt that that that, that is a consequence of having AI. And in that sense, AI is, in, is changing our intelligence. It's having an effect on how we are able to operate. And is there anything desirable about trying to replicate human intelligence in AI? Or does it make more sense to have have that be a separate branch of something that since, like, is it like we already, we can already do it, so why build that as well? Some, I, I think the consequences here are relevant for employment. So while it's true that many jobs which someone might label as a menial job can still bring great um, sense of pride and purpose in the person that does it, you know, the satisfaction in a job well done, to immerse their hands in actual skilled labour. 
nevertheless, I think some jobs just are, frankly, demeaning. I mean, some jobs are uh, such as would not be desirable by anybody if they had the choice. And if we can replicate those human skills so that a machine can do the, the dirty work and the, the heavy lifting, then I think that's that's a desirable um, pursuit. Of course, it may not look like that's what's needed. What, what do I mean by that? Um, so there's a story that back when horses were still the primary mode of transport, obviously there was a thriving industry of what they called farriers, horseshoe makers. That's what a farrier is. And you might think that if we automate horses, um, we, we might be able to we might be able to automate um, farriers as well, you know, so that we have automated horseshoe makers for automated horses. But that's not how that story ended up. The story was that horses were replaced and we didn't need to automate farriers because we moved on to tyres. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's hard to tell how automation will change the nature of work. It's very difficult to read the tea leaves on that. But as I say, if we can eliminate the truly demeaning tasks that humans, unfortunately, are still required to do and get machines to do them, then that's, I think, a desirable pursuit. So I'm going to jump back to just uh, trying to still define AI. How does... How does predictive, I think you focus mostly on, in the book, on predictive AI. How does, technically speaking, predictive AI function? Um, what is a deep neural network? And how does that have to, what does that have to do with machine learning? Okay. So we've been talking up until now about AI. I might have mentioned machine learning in passing, but... To be clear, machine learning is um, uh, just a, the most influential approach to artificial intelligence around. It, it's really just a type of artificial intelligence. There are many other types that don't involve machine learning. But as the name suggests, machine learning harnesses the power of computers as well as the, the sheer volume of information, data now available thanks to the internet, to enable computers to learn for themselves. And that's genuinely novel in the sense that traditional artificial intelligence, um, artificial intelligences, AIs, didn't learn. They were pre-programmed with rules. And that particular approach where you you pre-program the rules into an AI ran its course but then came into, ran into a kind of a brick wall. So the, the novel approach, which originates, I suppose, largely from techniques that were first developed in the 1980s, is called machine learning, where you try to um, uh, develop systems that can learn for themselves by giving them lots of data and letting them find um, new insights for themselves without you telling them the answer. So... The way that happens, the way machine learning systems learn is 
primarily by identifying statistical patterns, correlations in data. That's that's basically what we mean in the book by predictive predictive analytics. So there's two forms of this um, machine learning and identifying statistical patterns in data. One process is called supervised machine learning. Another process is unsupervised. Now, most of my work really focuses on supervised machine learning because that's where all the action has been in the past five to seven years. So, um, so supervised machine learning is basically where you train a system by giving it lots of labelled examples of input-output pairs. So to, to unpack that, if you want to train a system to tell the difference between a cat and a dog, what you would do is you would feed it a whole heap of examples of cat images and then you would tell the system that that's a cat image. And then you'd do the same with dog images and tell the system that this is a dog. So you're giving it lots of labelled input-output pairs. And if you do that a gazillion times um, and then you let that system loose on new images of cats and dogs that the machine hasn't seen, the hope is that by the end of the training regime, the system can make accurate classifications or accurate predictions about the data that it's been fed. Um, And the reason why we focus on this sort of supervised machine learning, as I said, is because this is the one that is, I suppose, the the flavour of the month. This is the, the version of machine learning which is being used increasingly to supplant or to supplement human decision-making in lots of different areas, so criminal justice, legal practice, um, medicine, finance, public administration. This is the technology that's being used in those areas. So it's it's what's posing most of the the thorny issues, legal issues, ethical issues, political issues as well. Um, I think you asked me there as well something about what deep learning is. Well, so we start with AI. That's the general name for this field of computer science. Machine learning, I said, is is just a, a branch of AI and it's concerned with um, machines learning things for themselves on the basis of data that they've been given. I focus on supervised machine learning, which is when you actually tell the system what it's seeing, and you do that a gazillion times, so to speak, so that it gets trained to to be able to recognise patterns for itself, and then it can be let loose in the wild. Um, Deep learning, in turn, is a special kind of machine learning. Um, now, the, the thing that you need to know about deep deep learning, probably just to um, get you acquainted with them, is that they are modelled very loosely on, on real biological brains. So in the same way that brains, you know, um, mammalian brains, for example, have lots of neurons, and they are connected by what are called synapses. Uh, An an artificial neural network or or deep learning network is a really, really simplified version of that where you have units 
um, that are meant to mimic the, the activity of neurons in the brain. And then they have links in between them that are meant to mimic the action of synapses in the brain. And they're ordered in particular ways. And the idea is that you feed data into them in an input layer. So you've got all these neurons lined up in what's called a layer. You you encode the information you need in a form that can be um, reduced to um, information that can be received by these, these little neuron units. And then that information gets fed through the various layers of the network and it gives you a response at the other end. That's just to acquaint your audience with the general idea of a neural network. Um, I'll say something about how they work and I'm going to use a kind of musical example to illustrate what I mean about the operation of deep, deep learning. So you might, say, you might say to someone, well, a deep learning network is this, this structure that kind of loosely resembles a brain and you feed it information and then it trickles down through the various layers of these neural units and gives you an answer at the other end. So you, you feed it images of, say, say um, a cat or a dog and then at the end you hope that it tells you, yes, this is a cat or this is a dog. But people might wonder, how exactly did it learn to do that? How exactly um, are correlations being identified? How are the patterns being picked up? Why is it that this machine, and that's, that's all it is, it's just a machine, there's nothing spooky or mysterious um, going on. I mean, we might not be able to explain what the internal processes are, but there's no question that it's just a brute physical process at, at the bottom. So there's nothing, there's nothing like a soul in the machine. How is it that it's picking up these patterns? So here's the musical illustration that I often use with students. So if you picture um, a guitar sitting in the corner of your room and think of a classic like acoustic guitar, don't, not, not an electric guitar, but a more sort of old-fashioned um, Spanish guitar. So you've got this guitar in the corner of your, your room. Now imagine that separately you've got your iPhone and you're playing loud music from a speaker. And let's just say that it's playing music that happens to be in the key of F sharp. Now remember, the guitar is just sitting all by itself on the side of the room. Um, now, naturally, what's going to happen is that as the music that you've got playing through your, your sound system is playing, the guitar strings are going to vibrate with that sound and that key. You can just picture your guitar strings vibrating ever so slightly as the music is playing. They're going to vibrate um, as that music's playing. Now, if you pick up the guitar and then you tune each individual string by tightening or loosening the pegs as the music is playing in the background, um, as you listen carefully, there'll be a setting for each string on the guitar where the string will vibrate most sympathetically with, with the sound that it's listening to. So you can just picture, if I loosen this string in this particular fashion, 
I tend to get the most vibration going. Whereas if I if I tighten it a bit too much, it doesn't um, vibrate as much. Or if I loosen it too much, it doesn't vibrate enough. But there's just this kind of optimal setting where it vibrates the most. And if I repeat that process a lot of times, eventually what will happen is that the tuning of the strings on the guitar will settle down to a kind of optimal tuning state where um, the strings will all vibrate naturally and, and most with the key of F sharp whenever music is played in the key of F sharp. So now having done that, I'm almost at the end of the little illustration here, but having done that, imagine you then run through your playlist on your iPhone. So you put the guitar down, you run through your playlist with your iPhone and the music is coming through the speakers and every song naturally will probably be in a different key. What you're likely to notice is that the vibration of the guitar strings is strongest when the music in the background happens to be in the key of F sharp. Because remember, we've, we've tuned the guitar so that each of the strings vibrates most sympathetically when the music in the ambient space is in the key of F sharp. So now as you go through your playlist, the next song might be in the key of A. Your guitar will vibrate a bit. Um, then the next song might be in the key of B minor. The... Uh, guitar strings again will vibrate but then when the, the music turns to another song that's in the key of f sharp you'll notice that the strings are going wild they're really responding to music in the key of f sharp so basically what you've just done is you've built an f sharp key recognition system um, using a completely automated process requiring no knowledge of music or no knowledge of even what it means to play in the key of F-sharp, or anything else about music. So the guitar doesn't have a soul, the guitar doesn't have a mind, but it's been, in a sense, um, trained to recognise a particular feature in its environment. And that, I think that's probably the most intuitive way to think about deep learning and neural networks. They pick up patterns in data and um, they are constructions that resonate with the complex patterns that are present in their inputs. I think that's probably all your audience needs to know about deep learning. Hmm. So you say that in, in a chapter in the book, you talk about how it's actually much more con what the process of making coming to a decision even thinking a thought in the human brain is is actually much more opaque and obscure than what's happening inside a machine but we still have a lot of suspicion when when we're faced with judgments when we're faced with machines making or making human judgments that are usually made by humans how should we decide whether a judgment that a computer makes, that an AI system makes, is a sound judgment? If we can't go back into the, into the black box, as you call it, and trace every single move that it made that got it to a certain decision. So uh, one approach to this question is to step back 
and and ask yourself given that i don't really know what goes on inside your head when you're deciding things and yet i take what you say when you explain your behavior to me i take what you say and i work with that um perhaps we should be looking for something similar from machines so that when a machine decides or recommends a course of action i should be attentive to features of um of of what the system has done that most resemble um the the features of the explanation that you give me when you do something so if you explain your behavior um, you, you know you might have decided to visit an auntie one day after a long time and if i ask you why you might give me a reason something like i haven't seen her for a long time and i miss her or i feel bad that i haven't seen her and i think i should see her you give me some reason like that perhaps we can extract something similar in the case of a machine so obviously we'll be ignoring a lot that's going on and we won't be able to understand necessarily every interaction um in the intermediate stages of a process between input and output but we might be able to say well look when you give this particular machine an image of a cat or a dog what it's doing when it tells you that it's a cat that it's seeing what it's doing is it's focusing on this or that feature of say the snout or the no I mean the nose um or the length of whiskers something like that and it it has learned to associate that whiskers of a certain length correspond to or correlate with cats and when they're shorter for example um they correspond with dogs so in in essence even though we don't know how the machine got from input image to output image we can say with some degree of confidence that well you know what it's deciding that this is a cat because of the length of the whiskers that's what really gives up the game for this machine now that resembles the kind of explanation that you would provide if you were told if you were asked why do you think this is a cat why do you think this is a dog well because look at it it's got whiskers it's got pointy ears it's got that fluffy tail these are all features of a cat not a dog so that's one way of approaching the question of how to explain a system that is opaque ultimately and that we can't understand right so but because we don't because we we know that ai isn't thinking about things the way that we think about things as you described earlier it's a system of inputs that recognizes patterns does that necessarily should that necessarily give us pause to to being open to to embracing decisions that it makes whether in the in the legal system when it when it's going to have real effects on people's lives if you can demonstrably show a uh, demonstrably prove that the correlations are as you say they are that the machine really is um fixing on this partic- particular cluster of features that's really what's deciding um 
the decision for that's making the decision for them. If you can say that with some degree of confidence, then I think the more confident you are that those are the features that are de- decisive, then the more we should, I should say, the less we should be worried about relying on that as an explanation. Um, obviously, the the more high stakes the decision, the more um, potential for there to be error, the more complex the the input space, the feature space, so that you're actually dealing with so many variables that any selection of features that you say are the ones that were decisive for the machine is bound to be arbitrary and missing the full picture. Anytime that happens, then you should be wary. But if we can get some degree of confidence as to what the machine is actually doing, uh, what it is really um, fixing its attention on, then I think we have less reason to be afraid, particularly when the stakes aren't so high. I should specify, what kind of decisions are we entrusting our AI to? So they've been used in criminal justice. So, for instance, in deciding whether someone is eligible for bail or someone that comes up for parole, whether they're eligible to be granted parole. Um, And, in fact, they've also been used in sentencing to determine the likelihood of the um, person, the convict, uh, being uh, arrested again. So, in other words, the likelihood of what's called recidivism. Uh, They've been used in in each of those those contexts. And the, the question is always put in terms of prediction. Will a person with this particular profile be likely to evade the jurisdiction? Are they going to run for the border if we let if we if we grant them bail and they are let loose in the community? Are they going to harm again if we let them loose? Um, in the sentencing context, it would be if we um, give a very light sentence to this person, are they going to reoffend based on the profile that this person has. So it's always a question cast in terms of prediction and um, features of that person are things like um, their uh, perhaps their education, their age, um, the area they live in, um, all sorts of things. But bear in mind that some features of a person are not to have any a weight at all in the decision. You cannot take somebody's ethnicity or somebody's uh, gender into account if you're going to determine their likelihood of reoffending. In fact, there's an argument to be said that gender should be taken into account because overall women are less likely to reoffend than men. But on the whole, you're supposed to ignore certain features that are protected in law. You give an example in the book about an AI system called PredPol, which is used for policing. And you talk about how, for oftentimes racially biased reasons, there is heavier police patrolling in some areas. Um, so, so, so first I should say, so 
when so predpol is used to predict where crime will occur and it's used so that police can um allocate resources more efficiently to predict so that if they know that crime is going to occur in one location over another they can send out their forces to that location over the other more 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 frequently um but the problem is that because the that area has already been more heavily policed there will be more data about crime in that area which will be put into this ai system which will then be fed back out to to garner more police presence in that area which will then be like a self-fulfilling prophecy where the the officers will be deployed in that area find more crime more will be put into the system and they'll come back out so even if so even if we're not putting in obvious descriptors like race or or gender within a biased or a prejudiced system or context aren't those features necessarily encoded into the data that we're putting in whether it's even though it's not actually we're not naming ethnicity or or income level but but we certainly have the proxies for them in the data yes so there there's a problem on the one hand there's a problem of proxies which is when you don't put in um the protected attribute you don't use that as a as a as a feature so i don't put anything about gender or i don't put anything about race but i end up putting a bunch of other features in that basically track gender or track race so if everybody in say uh, the black community happens to live um in a certain area of new york if that's the case then okay i don't mention race but if i'm mentioning the postcode or the zip code as you call it then i'm picking race up anyway so that's one problem the other problem is that the one you referred to initially which is that if we are discriminating against certain members of our society just with even without ai then when we train ai on the data that is already now contaminated by our own discriminatory practices well the ai is only going to reflect back at us that discrimination so it's a case of rubbish in rubbish out as they say that is the main pro- i think this proxies are also a problem but this second problem of the um the inherently structural injustice that's within our society or within our community being reflected back into being reflected back at us by our technologies that's the most difficult and um stubborn problem to contend with 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 ai and as far as bias is concerned there are things that can be done about it to clean the data and to make it more representative but that is probably i would say that the abiding problem it seems particularly insidious because in sts we talk a lot about how when when we get information from science or from our technology there's an assumption that it's objective so it feels almost beyond blame when it comes from our systems in that we can't say oh well this is a uh, the the judge has too much discretion it's a this is a racist ruling it becomes almost 
like a fact that that there's more crime in one area or another. It becomes harder to say, oh, well, that's because this person has a has a prejudice against this. It, for some reason, we, we start to see it as just fact. Yeah, that's right. Um, people often talk about this as the allure of objectivity, um, and they certainly do have that. But when you know what goes into their construction and how data are collected, then you'll be more sceptical of, of that allure and you won't be drawn in so easily. Which is, just to go back to a point that I made earlier, which is why I say the problem of dealing with opacity can be dealt with in several ways. The way I mentioned, where you try to get something like an analogue of human reasons from a machine is merely one approach among many. And you couldn't do that. You couldn't try to figure out the reasons of a machine and just trust that all is well if, in fact, the problems that you're talking about have been unaddressed. So in dealing with opacity, that there are different types of opacity. There's the opacity of the machine itself and its internal computation, but then there's also the opacity of how it was made. Who was it made for? What was the motivation? Who's benefiting from this system? Why is there such interest in this system being taken up? Might be efficiency is being touted as the reason, but is it efficiency or is it more like there's a company that's going to make a lot of money by selling this product to state institutions, state departments. And that's also opaque. That's another kind of opacity. So the, 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 the so-called solution that they offered before has to be considered in a broader social context, social and political context. And that brings me to my next question about privacy. I know that like after this, the movie The Social Dilemma came out, everybody who I was speaking to suddenly was so worried about big tech mining their data. Why? But to me, I was always like, I, I've, I've never, I don't really know that much about it, but I was always like, I mean, I don't really care. I don't have anything to hide. I don't, I, my ads are getting better. Now I have all the skincare products right in front of me that I don't have to take the time to research. Why does it matter if if big tech, if Facebook is keeping track of our data? Because giving you ads that are convenient and that save you time is only one among many possible uses of the data that has been gleaned from you. So when you give away data, you're not just giving away data that will be used to make your life more convenient, it may also be used to train systems to predict a whole bunch of other things that you don't know, that you're not aware of, that maybe even the data broker or the data collector doesn't know at the time. So they might make use further down the track. So just a couple of examples of this. You give your data away to, let's say, um, in the form of a fitness app. So you, you have a fitness app that, that records your heart rate, that records your your number of steps you do over the course of the week, average steps that you, you do over the course of the week. Um, perhaps it's got information about your kind, the, your your diet, 
all this stuff which you think is actually quite innocent, but what if that information is then used to train a system to learn that people that have as, as much exercise as, as you take, that take as much exercise as you take during the week and that eat the kind of food that you eat and that have the kind of heart rate that you have and so on and so forth, are people that are likely to develop, let's say, uh, some chronic disease later in life or likely to maybe um, uh, to not not be such good drivers, may have slow um, reflexes or something like that. That's information that's going to be inferred about people like you. But it's not only going to be inferred about people like you, it's also going to be inferred and put to use against you if that information is some at some point sold on to an insurance company. So you go to get health insurance at some point later down the track and that insurance company has access to data because it's purchased it from some third-party data broker that tells them that you are the kind of person that will have some chronic illness develop later in life or that you're the kind of person with slow reflexes and you're going to have a car, more likely to have a car accident. That gets built into the, the premiums that you get charged. It's, it's all very much downstream. There's no way you can know what possible use will be made of this data, but there is a thriving, enormous data economy and um, there's, a, there's a saying which is all bets are off. It just means the outcome is uncertain. No one can predict how this is going to go. But in a nutshell, it doesn't stop with the ads that you get for hair products. So maybe it's what's not worrisome is the personalized data. Like I don't have to necessarily worry that they're keeping track of me, Francis, and watching my every move for for reasons of oh I'm embarrassed about this or that I more have to worry about I'm an aggregate of a larger system that's going to come back to bite me. Yes, yes, and actually it's a really good point. I think a lot of people have this misperception, and it's not their fault. There's something in the the use of the word privacy that makes it sound as if it's all about me and what I'm doing in the wee hours of the night and what I look like when I don't have clothes on coming out of a shower. But it's actually not about you. It's more about everyone else whose data then gets put together into one big pot. Things are learned about people like you and then that comes back and is weaponized against you in all sorts of other ways not in the sort of George Orwell big brother sense. Um, it's, not, it's not about controlling what you think necessarily, but it is um, telling companies about you in ways that then um, make them have a greater bargaining power when you approach them for certain essential services. So it, it's more complicated than me being spied upon by some voyeur next door. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So we are reaching our hour mark. I just wanted to ask you, lastly, what what are your hopes and your fears for AI going forward? Because I know we're in a period of really rapid technological innovation and change. One of the fears that I have 
which is not so much about AI, but it's related to AI, is that the internet will come crashing down. If, if, if the, the infrastructure that upholds our online connected lives, cyber, cyberspace, somehow malfunctions or is um, subject to some massive cyber attack, I sometimes just shudder to think what that would mean. At least with the pandemic that we've just been through and are sort of still coming out of, we did have the internet and we were able to put so much of our lives online and just proceed as normal. But if that were taken away, you know, we were talking before about how when you you use a piece of technology, you become less adept at doing the thing without the technology. And I wonder how much of us, how much of our lives would be thrown into complete upheaval if we didn't have our iPhone. I mean, if we if we actually had to even just something simple like meeting someone, today we can just take it for granted and we can get into the proximity of where we agreed to meet and then we can just start furiously texting until our paths cross. But once upon a time you had to actually have a fixed landmark and say, I'll meet you at that thing at that hour and there was no way of getting in touch with them if they were late or anything like that. There was no, yeah, I'm five minutes away or the bus is slow, the train didn't come, I'll be another hour. It was none of that. And that's just a really simple example. On a broader scale, it really, that, that does worry me. That sounds like hell. <laughs> yeah. And any, any hopes going forward? My hopes are for um, medicinal advances. So the, the thing we didn't discuss, which was unsupervised machine learning, that has been found to have very beneficial effects, uh, very beneficial uses um, in science. And you can use um, uh, machine learning technology of that kind to predict the structure of protein folds, for example. Um, there's all sorts of things that scientists that are unaided might not be able to come up with or discover unless by fluke, which a machine learning system may be able to do fed enough data. And if that's the case, I think, uh, again, all bets are off, but in a very positive way. There might be all sorts of medical breakthroughs that are in the wings. And that's my, that's my great hope for machine learning. In the book, you wrote that some that an AI system can spot Alzheimer's with up to eighty percent accurate accuracy up to a decade before the appearance of first symptoms. Yes, and that's just using supervised machine learning. That's just doing the the painstaking input output pairs, um, labeled input output pairs, and telling it this is a case of Alzheimer's. This is not a case of Alzheimer's, and doing that a gazillion times, and it it has that kind of accuracy. So unsupervised learning in the domains of medicine and medical research and molecular biology that I'm talking about is even way more exciting than that. And that's exciting enough. That's so, that's very cool. I didn't know that. So my last question is, are you working on anything currently related to this book? Yes. So um, I'm, I'm interested in the question of online manipulation and a lot of us some people have begun to write about this 
in more depth than has been possible recently. And I'm interested in particular in whether the kind of manipulation that happens online um, can be more than the sum of its parts. So there's manipulation that might happen at an individual level. Say you're given an ad and the ad maybe manages to change your behavior and you go out and buy that product. That's just traditional advertising. There's nothing new about that. Um, and a lot of the, the, the online targeted advertising that is discussed in the context of manipulation is, is not really all that much more advanced at a psychological level than traditional television advertising. However, it might in the aggregate amount to more than the effect that it's having on just you. So if a targeted ad has, let's say, a 0.1% chance of manipulating you, that does translate um, into quite a lot of people manipulated when you start thinking about a million people. So an ad with a 0.1% chance of manipulating you has a very low chance of manipulating you. You don't have to be worried about it. But if 1 million people see that very same ad, 0.1% equals 1,000 people being manipulated. And that can have, and I dare say has already had, effects when it comes to democracy and our politics. Because if enough people see an ad that, just ever, ever so slightly nudges them to vote one way or the other, it may have, as I say, like a negligible effect on you, but over the population of the US, for example, that could be something like, what, 300, uh, could be talk, we could talk, be talking about 300,000 people who could be changing their behaviour, and that can swing an election. Right. So that's something I'm working on at the moment. So interesting. Well, thank you so much for being here on the show. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm looking forward to reading your next work. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for having me.